The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Hello, and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm Cameron Bokov, and I will be hosting today's episode in Laura's stead. Today's episode will involve discussions around trauma, mental health, and mental health care. We recognize that this topic may be difficult for many listeners. If you are not up for that conversation, for any reason, please take a moment to click away. Today we are joined by Phil Ralph. Phil currently serves as the Director of Health Services for Wounded Warriors Canada, and has served in various capacities throughout the organization's history including serving as chair for two years. As director of health services, he oversees the implementation of a robust and exciting slate of transformative, culturally appropriate, group-based interventions that are clinically facilitated and grounded in evidence that draws upon leading trauma research, benefiting veterans, first responders, and their families. For over a quarter century, until releasing from the Canadian Armed Forces in 2016, Phil served our nation as the regimental chaplain to the 32 Combat Engineer Regiment, formerly the 2nd Field Engineer Regiment. In that capacity, he was exposed to the challenges and needs of today's veterans. Having seen firsthand the effects of deployments on our veterans, he has a passion to contribute to assisting today's veterans towards wholeness and healing. As the son of a firefighter whose family's service extends back into the 1800s, he has also witnessed firsthand the challenges that face first responders and their families. Padre Ralph has served as directing staff at the Canadian Forces Chaplain School and Centre located within Canadian Forces Base Borden on several occasions. He has also served as the senior chaplain at Blackdown Cadet Training Center, supervising his staff as they cared for a camp of 3,000 personnel, including up to 2,500 young people. Phil holds a Bachelor of Theology degree from Ontario Bible College and a Master of Divinity degree from the Ontario Theological Seminary. Beyond military and congregational ministry, Phil has been active in the wider community by serving on the boards of several agencies dedicating to assisting those in need. For his work in the community, he was awarded the Canada 125 Medal, given for significant contributions to Canada, and the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal. He is also the recipient of the Canadian Forces Decoration. Please welcome Phil Ralph. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you uh, very much for making the time for us today. We'll jump right in. Being an aviation podcast, we usually start off our episodes by asking how our guests got their start in aviation. Uh, Your career was not in aviation, but do you have any ties to the aviation community? Well, I, I, I knew you were going to ask that question. So, I, I, you know, I have lots of cool things on my walls, like some of the things behind me, which is my family history, military and and through uh, firefighters, et cetera, and certificates and, you know, people decorate their walls. But I, I'm going to show you my favorite thing that I have. Uh, I don't know whether you can see this, but this is uh, from 1980. And this is the certificate I got on my first solo. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> so, so actually, uh, it's interesting. When I was a kid, uh, that was my chosen uh, career. I, I, when I grew up, I was always going to be a pilot. That's, you know, like, like many young boys, I guess, uh, uh, growing up when I did, you know, fascination with airplanes and, you know, uh, and always wanted to be a pilot. Uh, my best friend growing up uh, in my later teenage years, um, he also wanted to be a pilot. He took a completely different uh, uh, 
career turn as I did. He he um, he actually uh, did not go to college or university, but instead his uh, parents uh, bought him a half share in a Cherokee 140. And uh, so when I was 17, I had a car, and he had a license, and he had an airplane. But he had to get to the airport to fly his plane and to get all his hours to do what he wanted to do in his career. So it was perfect for me. Uh, I was, you know, after he got his uh, basic uh, pilot's license, his private license, I, I got to run, you know, roughshod in the right seat and, uh, and uh, get quite a bit of experience behind the stick and fly all over and take trips to, uh, you know, we were just north of Toronto, there used to be a little airport uh, near Canada's Wonderland called Maple. And uh, so that's, uh, that's where we flew out of, uh, except in the spring, when the, when the plane sunk into the mud, uh, we, uh, we moved the plane to what was then uh, Toronto International, now Pearson. Because uh, back then you could actually put a little Cherokee 140 and get into the circuit. Uh, it's a little busier now than it was back then. But uh, so I got to fly quite a bit and, and uh, it was something I'd always wanted to do and was kind of a career path. Uh, but then it, it, it got shifted along the way and I ended up going. Uh, I actually uh, did one semester at Seneca College in aviation and flight technology. Uh, so I enjoyed that, that course. And, uh, and although uh, I took a different career choice, um, I was always interested in flying. And so uh, my, uh, uh, I, I continued on and, and you know, did a little bit on the side. And finally, as you know, doing it privately and paying for it yourself and going to university uh, a choice had to be made, so uh, so I uh, I no longer fly. Uh, but now I'm later in life. Uh, it's funny we were talking about this broadcast uh, with a colleague in my office, and uh, he picked up Microsoft Flight Simulator and fell in love with it. And so he's taking he's he's going out for his first introductory flight to Buttonville next week. So uh, uh, I told him if he get carries on with that, I, I might pick up pick it up again, and and maybe later on in my career, just for fun, we could maybe share an airplane. So uh, it is the one thing I do miss from my youth. I, I do miss that uh, sense of being up there all by yourself. Of you know, um, and then my friend went on uh, incidentally to to fly, and he's, he's still at uh, Bombardier as one of their uh, chief pilots and. One time in his career, he was flying. He was uh, working for a company that did uh, uh, some training. So I, I did get to fly Dash Sevens and Dash Eights, albeit it was the simulator, but it was still kind of cool. That's an excellent story. I remember being a uh, being a young man myself. I I was an air cadet and yeah. uh, got my glider license before I could drive myself to the airport. So there was uh, there was a few <laughs> weekends where it was it was asking Ma to drive me out there. As we mentioned at the top of the episode. Uh, you went on to serve as a chaplain in the Canadian Armed Forces in a few different capacities. Uh, obviously, chaplains provide religious services, but uh, what other services and what other things were you responsible for? So if you actually read the definition, uh, you know, as it was written uh, when I joined of what a chaplain's role is, uh, of course, people see the public religious services at Remembrance Day and funerals and those kinds of things. But the, pr the primary role of a chaplain in the Canadian Armed Forces is to provide moral and spiritual, you know, to look out for the moral and spiritual welfare of uh, those that you're serving with uh, and, and their families. So uh, you are um, uh, the, one of the chief advisors to the commanding officer, advising the, him or her on uh, the morale in the unit, 
uh, you know, an ear to talk to, uh, a problem solver. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, you think back on Canada's history. Uh, you know, you go back to to the Great War and even before that to uh, to the Boer War. Uh, when when Canadian citizens went off to war, they went as a you know county regiments, etc. And uh, the local clergy said, "Well, if if uh, you know the men as they were back then, because it was just men back then, uh, if the men of my county are, are going off to fight for the country, they will need uh, they're going to be facing some stiff questions and some 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 ideas." So they they decided to don a uniform and deploy with them. And and that and and be embedded within the regiments themselves, and so that tradition, uh, you know, which is uh, British Commonwealth tradition, uh, continues on to this day. Um, more recently, in the in the Canadian Forces, um, you know, chaplains uh, have been involved in all areas of operations. Uh, they've been um, decorated in in theaters of, of conflict. As a matter of fact. Uh, there was a, you know, our, probably our most famous chaplain in Canadian history was uh, Padre Foote, who landed with the tro troops at uh, Dieppe and was awarded the Victoria Cross without ever firing a shot uh, because his, uh, what he did was he ran back and forth across the beaches as, uh, as the Germans were, were uh, mowing down the Canadians on, on that beach on that, that, uh, that, that day in August in 1942. And uh, he, he was taking them to safety so they could uh, go to the improvised aid station and, and get first aid. And he kept exposing himself to fire and collecting uh, the wounded. And he did that all day. And then when uh, the small boats that tried to pull them off as many as they could off the beaches arrived, he, he carried the wounded out to uh, the craft and, and, uh, and uh, back and forth. And then when the last one was going to leave, uh, he told them uh, to carry on, go back to England without him because uh, where the prisoners were going, they would need somebody to care for them. And he he then surrendered uh, to the Germans and spent the rest of the Second World War in a POW camp. And for that action, he was awarded uh, the Victoria Cross, uh, which is our highest uh, decoration for bravery uh, in the face of the enemy. Um, and so it, 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 that's a pretty high standard. Uh, that's the highest standard. Um, uh, my, my own career, I was uh, involved quite a bit in, uh, you know, training of chaplains. Uh, you mentioned cadet camps. So I was, uh, uh, on a number of occasions, I was uh, the senior chaplain at the, the largest cadet camp in Canada, which is uh, Blackdown at CMP Borden. Uh, but uh, regimentally, uh, the things that uh, fell to us, especially during uh, later, you know, some of the years through Bosnia in the 90s uh, and Croatia, and then on into Afghanistan in the early 2000s. Uh, one of the roles that chaplains has that nobody really wants to do is uh, we are tasked with uh, uh, notifications. So we, we are the, the, the individual. Uh, early in the 90s, it was we did it alone. And then into the 2000s and through Afghanistan wisely, they paired us up with a senior officer uh, to go and we would make notifications when uh, there was someone who was seriously wounded or uh, and couldn't uh, you know call back for themselves so that we could let their loved ones know and or uh, if they were killed in action. And then uh, as that came on uh, more and more, um, you know, kind of fast forward to what I'm doing now, uh, more and more towards the end of our engagement in Afghanistan, 
more and more people like myself uh, and other chaplains uh, were being sadly tasked to go to homes to uh, say that although uh, their son or daughter or husband uh, or wife had come home from the theater of com of conflict, uh, that sadly that the, they uh, later uh, died by suicide. And uh, we had to make that notification as well. And so knowing that mental health was a, um, a huge uh, need and something that that the government was not doing a good job on. They were doing a fairly good job on uh, physical injuries, but uh, but mental health was was lagging behind. Uh, Wounded Warriors Canada really uh, evolved into the organization it is today in about 2012-13 and uh, became uh, today, which is a national mental health service provider for veterans, first responders, and their families. 2016, we expanded our our uh, provision of service beyond military and veterans to uh, first responders as well. So police, fire, EMS, corrections, et cetera. I personally had not heard the story of, uh, of Chaplain Foote before, um, despite reading far too much history in a lot of people's uh, opinions. Yeah. Um, you can never read too much history. Never. Um, <laughs> <laughs> looking, uh, looking at sort of the the progression of how chaplaincy came about and, and progressed and how, uh, how we speak about mental health and how that has progressed. I, uh, unfortunately, the best example I always have is George Carlin uh, explaining the change of language from the First World War when it was, uh, when it was shell shock and making it through uh, battle fatigue and operational exhaustion. Now, we, now of course, we call it post-traumatic stress disorder. But the, the way we treat language, the way we treat uh, mental health has changed. And it's, uh, it's excellent to see that we're, we're finally providing the services that people need and that uh, the military is also helping take care of uh, its own people. First of all, it's always a good interview if you reference George Carlin. <laughs> my, my, my favorite comedian of all time. Uh, it just, you know, uh, and, and yes, I remember that, uh, that routine very well. Uh, you know, along with his one about stuff, but that's a whole other. <laughs> and and because I'm older, the one about getting older. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, and 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 he's right about the progression of language, etc. I mean, broadly, uh, we now call uh, mental health injuries are, are in a category called operational stress injuries. So uh, that takes it beyond just formal diagnosis of, of post traumatic stress. I mean, that's kind of the the diagnosis that everybody thinks of when they think of a mental health injury, but not everyone who has a mental health injury is diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or a post-traumatic stress injury. Um, you know, there, there's depression and and all kinds of other uh, comorbidities that that uh, you know are in the broad spectrum. So, uh, a great term uh, for uniform service is operational stress injuries. So it is you know, as a result of the operations, the things you've seen, the things you've done, and the stresses you've under, that, 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 that you've, you've uh, uh, you know, you end up with this injury. And so it, it covers the broad range. Although, yes, PTSD is the most well-known uh, publicly. As you mentioned, you're now with the Wounded Warriors Canada, and you serve as the Director of Health Services. What services does Wounded Warriors offer to veterans and first responders? So Wounded Warriors Canada is a, is a national uh, mental health service provider for veterans, first responders, 
And the key part is, and their families. Um, many people look at operational stress injuries, uh, mental health injuries in general, as something that affects that individual who has the injury. But anybody who lives with someone who has a mental health injury knows that it, it affects all the relationships, it affects the family. Sometimes, you know, we call mental health injuries because unlike physical injuries, you can't see them. They often call them the invisible injury, but they're not invisible to people who live with them every day. They can, they can see the effects of it every day. They, they wonder how to deal with it. And so uh, many of our programs, um, we're, we were originally set up to fill gaps in service. And so the largest gap that we identified was, um, you know, just, you know, group-based program that's, that's clinically facilitated, that's rooted in trauma research, that's evidence-based, that's clinically informed, and that understands uniform service culture. Uh, anybody who's worn a uniform, uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's a veteran uniform, a military uniform, or, or a first responder uniform, uh, you know, it has a different subculture and way of thinking. You know, we often talk about it as, you know, those people who will run towards danger while everybody else who seems a lot more sane is running away from the danger. Uh, you know, so uh, in order to do that, you know, you, you, the culture around it and what you do, it, it forms differently. So, so um, a clinician that, that wants to uh, work with this population has to understand uh, the way of thinking of, of a uniformed service personnel. It's, it's key. So we've, uh, we've, been, uh, we've developed our own programs, uh, you know, starting with COPE in 2015 uh, through our national clinical advisor, Tim Black, uh, who developed the program um, called COPE, which is Couples Overcoming PTSD Every Day. Uh, like all our programs, it's group, it's group format. It focuses on trauma. It's not about where or when or how you were injured, but the fact that you were injured and, and then taking steps to, to, to deal with that. And then having the couple do it, now, now the family is involved and being able to understand. And then, well, not everybody's able to bring a spouse or, or, or a partner. So uh, then we had our next program that we developed was called the Trauma Resiliency Program, which is an individual program uh, that it's done in two phases over seven days. And they're all residential programs, the downstream programs. And by residential, we don't mean what traditionally would be in the space where you'd go to uh, a clinical hospital-like facility. Ours are, our programs take place in, uh, you know, small res boutique resorts. Uh, and and we, we rent space there because it, it, it's a safe space. It's a relaxed space and it allows people to, to get in. So when they're in the in the classroom or in in the group work room, uh, you know they're doing the hard work. But then when they come out, there's a place to re relax and reflect without feeling like you're in this institution, which which uh, doesn't isn't isn't good for healing. So uh, uh, so we went to trauma resiliency program, and then out of that, um, what about the spouses on their own? Uh, you know, having a voice because even in the couples program things tend to defer to uh, the injured, injured individual. So the next program uh, we built clinically through our clinical team, and we have uh, a number of program developers across the country. And together with that, they're leading trauma therapists across the country. And so we have about 150 clinicians across the country. To, and uh, 
it doesn't matter where you are in the country, what province or territory you're in, uh, you're eligible to take our services and and uh, we'll, we'll get you to the one that's that's happening next and is uh, nearest to, to you. So from that, it's the Spousal Resiliency Program. Then of course, the next question was, what about children? So we have our Warrior Kids Program and uh, through COVID, we developed our Warrior Kids Virtual Program. Um, so that uh, is going well. And then unfortunately, uh, you know, we do know that, uh, that uh, men and women in uniform uh, you know, are ki sometimes killed in action or have line of duty deaths uh, or uh, die by suicide. And so, and that leaves uh, a whole wake of questions and traumatic grief for those that are left behind. So we, uh, we launched uh, in February, our surviving spouse program. Uh, and uh, the, the interesting thing that happened is, you know, I mean, as we know, COVID changed a lot of things for a lot of people. Um, one of the things that uh, first responders in particularly were saying was, we love all your programming, what you're doing and, and, and how you're treating us. And, and this is, you know, this is, this is cutting edge stuff, but we wish we would have known this earlier. If we would have had some of the psychoeducation, if we would have had some of the information, then maybe we wouldn't be in the place where we are as injured as we are. Uh, so uh, we began to work on upstream resiliency programs. Uh, so we have a whole package of suites now that uh, that uh, work on um, creating trauma-informed workplaces. So we have our BOSS program before operational stress. Um, it was originally targeted at wellness teams and peer support teams. And, and just recently, it got piloted as BOSS recruit. Uh, York Regional Police, just north of Toronto, a large police force, uh, put the recruit crafts through it. It was so amazing that they have now um, contracted us to deliver it to every uh, recruit class that follows. Uh, Edmonton Fire did exactly the same thing. Um, we're in, in the DND space. We've uh, we've offered and we're delivering right now our boss program to uh, the DND Ombudsman's Office to the Veterans Affairs Ombudsman's uh, Office as well. So uh, you know these programs are transforming culture. Uh, one of the other programs in there is is a trauma informed leadership part of our workplace because uh, much of an injury at time is not only that you're the fact that you're injured, but then how does the institution that you're part of, whether it be a police force, a fire department, or the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, how, how does their leadership react when you come forward? We have all these um, awareness pieces. You know, everybody knows about Bell Let's Talk Month and put up your hand and it's it's okay, you know, it's okay not to be okay. And and all, and all that, all those those messages, which are great, but what people were finding in the workplace was they were doing that. And then the institution didn't react positively to that. And they found that they were injured over again. So we so we now are giving leadership, uh, trauma-informed uh, leadership programming, because as our national patron, uh, Romeo Dallaire, uh, said to us very early on that uh, when it comes to mental health, it's every bit as much a leadership issue as it is a mental health issue. So it's a lot about how the institution supports somebody when they come forward. Uh, so we're, we're excited and working with our partners and doing that. And then we're the uh, the, the, the nation's leader in funding uh, PTSD service dogs for veterans and their families as well. I know that's a lot, but that's 
that's what we would do. <laughs> that that is a lot, and it's um, it's wonderful to see those services. Um, with the the before operational stress training, are people finding that it really affects the the care needed after an operational stress injury? Well, it gives them it gives them a lot of psychoeducation to understand what one of the problems with uh, mental health injuries is. A lot of times, people don't really understand what happened to them or why it happened. So some of that information really can help in their recovery. And also it gives them uh, micro skills in the program itself to be able to deal with the ongoing stresses of the battle of, of, of life. Because um, the thing about uniformed service, it's not a question about whether or not you're going to face a traumatic incident or whether there will be traumatic incidents in the course of your duties. The fact is there will be. It's, it's how do you respond to it? How does your body react to it? And, and then how do you deal with it? And what do you do with those things? Um, the best way to put it in the, in the most straightforward, what do you do with those things that get stuck? Uh, those, those incidents that, that six, 12 months later are still reoccurring and replaying. And how do you deal with those things? And that's what a lot of our downstream programming deals with. But the programs upstream like BOSS uh, can give you some of those tools to be able to, you know, while, you know, to, to deal with some of your, your, your trauma uh, right up front. Okay. So it's, it's really a matter of teaching people to identify and respond yeah. more, more quickly. So they don't have to necessarily uh, muddle through or suffer with something for as long. Yeah. And also, I mean, even when it comes to the downstream programming, uh, like, like a physical disease, um, you know, or, or a physical disorder, uh, the earlier treatment and the earlier the intervention, the, the more uh, effective things tend to be. You mentioned sort of, uh, especially with leadership and certain uh, individuals finding it hard to come forward to leaders and their response, um, coupled with what tends to be sort of longstanding stigma with mental health, are you finding that there's uh, a lot of effective ways now to combat stigma more than there were earlier on? Well, part of it is, and especially I'll talk about first responder services, especially. So we've been busy uh, over the past couple of years establishing formal, part, for, formal partnerships with first responder services. And as you realize, there's literally thousands of them across Canada. You think of how many municipal, federal, provincial, um, fire department and uh, regional fire departments, police departments, uh, et cetera, there are uh, paramedic uh, services. Um, so we've been going one by one. We now have about 150 services that we're partnered with across the country. And something amazing happens when we establish a partnership with, uh, let's say, so our latest one, um, that we announced was Clarington Fire Department, which is just uh, just east of Toronto in, in the Durham region. And uh, uh, so we stand up there with, with the chief of Clarington, who's one of our ambassadors because he's an early participant in some of our programs when he was a deputy chief here in Whitby. Uh, so he knew the power of our programs. But when the chief gets up there and when the president of the union get up there and they stand side by side with Wounded Warriors Canada, and they say that what this partnership means is that this service, no one service can be the complete answer, but we're partnering with them. They're a trusted place 
so feel free. They're giving them permission to, to put up their hand. They're giving them permission to step forward and they're giving them permission to do it with an organization that specializes in this like Wounded Warriors Canada. So the message is really, I mean, that's a positive, positive message, something that there wasn't there five, 10 years ago. Uh, so we, we're really excited as we uh, continue, you know, we've been uh, addressing um, some of these, some of these problems uh, and, and issues. We, we've de- we, we've delivered our boss program to the entire section of the RCMP that dealt with the horrible port pick shootings um, in, in Nova Scotia. Uh, we've we've uh, delivered programs to the Coast Guard on the West Coast. Um, the BOSS program is delivered to uh, Global Affairs Canada uh, officers before they deploy overseas in ones and twos so that they'll know what to do with tra- trauma. So, uh, you know, it's being really effective, well-received, and, uh, and transforming culture, albeit slowly. They're a little bit like an iceberg. Some, some, some move slower than others. Uh, some are very quick to move. Um, but, uh, you know, but for instance, when we, you know, because any first responder or military member or veteran out there, uh, right now can just go on our website and apply for a program. And because of the great support of Canadians and Canadian businesses right across Canada, we're able to offer these services, whether that, whether their services partnered with us or not, uh, they can come, um, but they're hesitant. You talked about stigma, but when we announce um, a a partnership, we can see it because all of a sudden, you know, when we get a contact form, it says, I'm with this police department, I'm with this fire department. And and it was the one that we just had a partner. So now they feel comfortable. Okay. My leadership says it's okay. So now I'll come. And And that's, that's a positive thing. For, for members that are struggling. It's a, it's a really powerful, it's powerful and it's positive. Yeah, you, you, you've brought up the idea of uh, changing culture a few times and that's, uh, especially coming from the aviation side of things, that's something that we've been trying to do for years and a lot of companies have struggled with. Um, the, the thing that popped to my mind was uh, I have many friends who are medevac pilots, medevac service providers um, that do go through that. And we're starting to see a, a difference in how they are treated as well. Yeah. Um, but the, the treatment that we're providing to those people beforehand seems to be, seems to be doing a lot of excellent work and that culture is changing as well. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a similar culture because it, it, it's a stoic culture by tradition and history. Um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're in the military, whether you're a medevac pilot, whether you're um, a police officer, a firefighter, a paramedic, when that call comes, when that, you know, you can't be thinking about your emotions and how you feel, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's a task to be done and there's, there's lives on the line. So, you, you know, you train and it's in the military, it's, it's muscle memory over and over again. So you do it almost without thinking because, um, because, because lives are literally on the line and it's important when you're doing that task. The problem becomes that when you're not in that situation and you continue to carry that armor, like your whole life has to be like that. And you have to be, you know, Superman or Superwoman, and, you know, like, like uh, trauma just bounces off you. Like, you know, like, like it's a cartoon character and, it, and 
that that doesn't deal well for the human being that is the firefighter, the the the, the human being that's the medevac pilot. Um, because you know, they, they have to, when they're doing their job, yeah, there's sometimes no place for emotions because you know, something goes wrong, something goes wrong in a cockpit. You don't want somebody uh, going through how they feel about it. You want them to flip the right switch, do the right thing, go through their, go through their SOPs and, and procedures so that they can protect uh, the lives on that aircraft and the aircraft itself. So that makes sense um, that, that you have to do your job that way. But then when you're not doing your job, you have to then take part, take care of the human part of you. Uh, and, and, and we've had a hard time doing that um, on the uniform service side because it's always, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, we can, we can do it, right? Uh, so it's, it's it, 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 you know, but that is changing and, and positively you know, treating people like human beings um, and then getting them healthier. And then if the people are healthy, conversely, they can do their jobs more effectively. Going back to uh, another thing you brought up earlier, you offer support and training to spouses, partners, and children of veterans and first responders. And you, you spoke a little bit about how the trauma can affect a family or attract, uh, affect a partnership. How do family members go about uh, seeking treatment from you and how, uh, how are they affected by the trauma that the operational member might feel? Well, I mean, there's lots of ways. I mean, spouses often talk, especially if, if their spouse is severely injured with a mental health injury, they talk about the family walking around the house on proverbial eggshells. They don't want to say the wrong thing to set that, that member off on uh, whatever might trigger them, et cetera. So, if they together get into a program and begin to understand what has happened and, and how to work at it together, because they're, you know, it can only be a positive thing. We've had, um, you know, so our, our, our kids program, you know, we talked to the, the parents to obviously to get permission for the, for the children to take the program. Uh, and uh, it's been amazing. Some of the feedback we've got back from the parents that, that the program has allowed them and has given permission to the children and to them to talk about what they've never talked about before and, and, and to understand and, and for the, and especially for children to understand that, you know, it wasn't that I asked this question to mom or dad that made them angry. It was the, it was, you know, the injury that reacting. And so, uh, you know, to relieve some of that guilt from, from, from the child as well, to help them understand what in, and uh, you know, age-appropriate language, of course, and and uh, and concepts, so that they can they can then. But it, it's also really relieved the parent because a mental health injury in a family is like throwing a rock into a pond. We all know what happens. There's a big splash, and that's the individual. But then there's all these ripples, and they affect everything. Uh, you know, and and people who who think you know I've got this, and I'm not gonna. Because what happens often with a mental health injury, uh, there is a tendency for people to isolate and to, to cut themselves off from communication. It, it, it's, it's them trying to protect themselves and protect others, but in, in doing so, they actually end up harming themselves and harming others because we are social beings and we need to, 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 to get those things unstuck. So, uh, you know, Giving a giving a platform 
in a group format for, for children and for spouses, um, as, as well as the members themselves is, is critical. And it's something that quite frankly, uh, we never thought about for the longest time. People would just get individual counseling and go home. Uh, what happened? What happened? What did you talk about? Nothing. Just give me the remote. I'll get the TV and, you know, and that was it. So it, it really, you know, how does, how does the family then, and how does the family work towards communication? We have a, a couples-based equine program where, um, you know, the, the partners learn communication skills and, and, and the horse is not magic, but horses are herd animals. And, uh, if you're calm, they're calm. And if you're showing tension, they won't move. They just don't move. So it's a great tool for a psychologist because the psychologist is going through their things and all of a sudden the, the, uh, the couple will be talking to each other and say, well, I'm calm or I'm this or I'm that. And psychologist just looks at him and says, okay, I believe you, but tell the horse. And there's this 1,000 pound thing that just won't move. Uh, you know, and then, oh, okay. Yeah, maybe I do need to relax. Maybe I'm not communicating the best. And, and sometimes it's because you're not even aware of it. I've dealt a lot with horses and dogs and yeah, they know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because you also offer uh, service dogs. And as you said earlier, the, you're the largest supporter of uh, service dogs for veterans in Canada. Um, how, how did, those, how did those, those dogs change the dynamic and how do they, um, how do people who've undergone trauma uh, respond to those? Well, I mean, for one thing, I mean, just on a, on a simple matter, everybody who has or has had a dog knows that dogs have to go outside for, <laughs> for very practical reasons. And as I said, mental health injuries tend to isolate. So you have to take your dog out. You take your dog out with a vest on more than likely you're going to communicate with somebody and you can see, you know, just on that very simple, basic terms, how that begins to, you know, and you bomb with your, the dogs are, are wonderful that they're, they're trained individually and paired uh, so that the handler, i.e. the veteran um, also, also has responsibilities to reinforce good behavior on the dog and they become a team working on the mental health injury together. And, uh, and, uh, people, you know, I mean, we all, anybody who's had a pet knows that, you know, intuitively even untrained animals, you know, can sense things, etc. But, uh, especially these dogs and, and we often wonder, well, well, how do they know and how do they sense so fast? Well, you know, the same reason we have, uh, dogs that, uh, that sniff out drugs and explosives and stuff, you know, those dogs are trained. And if you know anything about that training, you know, one drop in a swimming pool of, of, of a material and they can smell it. Well, we as human beings um, are chemical factories. And when we begin to experience anxiety, uh, our body levels change, our, our cortisone starts to rate, you know, all those things. The dog knows it way before you do. He can, he or she can smell it. They can literally smell what's happening. And so that, that magic, no, and then being the animals that they are and bonding with you, you know, like just, Hey, nudge it. And what they do a lot of is grounding you. 
so sometimes, you know, if, if your if your mental health injury is is bad, you you tend to disassociate from from where you are, and and the dog by nudging you on the knee or whatever, you know, sometimes it just takes a little bit or just sitting there and staring at you, you know, brings you back to the here and now and grounds you and, oh, okay, everything's okay. I can calm down. Dog's okay. I'm okay. Thank you very much. All right, let's carry on. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing to watch them work. And, and we have, we don't train the dogs ourselves, but we have great service provider, uh, uh, partners right across the country who who train them and make them possible. I'll be honest, I hadn't put the uh, the whole they need to go outside, so you need to go outside thing together. Um, yeah. That's uh, it, it's interesting how quickly that builds um, and hearing hearing that explanation from you. Um, if anyone is interested in learning more about Wounded Warriors Canada. Uh, where can they find more information and uh, where can they connect with your team? Well, I mean, the easiest thing is just to go on to our website, woundedwarriors.ca. Uh, for those that prefer, you know, social media, we, we uh, you know, we very active on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us there uh, and, uh, and follow us and uh, keep up to date. Uh, and uh, our contact numbers and phone numbers are right on the website. So, uh, if you need to contract, contact me directly, it's just phil at woundedwarriors.ca. Perfect. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today, Phil. Really enjoyed having you. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.